The Bloody Elbow Podcast Network is moving. That's right. We're moving from SoundCloud and YouTube to Substack. It will still be available through your current iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher subscriptions, but the main home of the Bloody Elbow Podcast Network will now be on Substack. While most of our audio content will remain free, we'll be asking listeners to please get a paid subscription to support the shows, which are now ad-free. Please give us your email and we'll send you notices and summaries of every new episode. Become a paid subscriber and get bonus segments only available to those who've pledged their support. Sign up at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com today. Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this weekend's UFC card. Here are your hosts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivisection with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host, as always, Connor Rebush. We're here once again talking about this week's UFC card going down at the AT&T Center in San Antonio, Texas, I think. Yeah, San Antonio, Texas, that's right. Headlined by a top-flight bantamweight contenders bout between Marlon Vera and Corey Sandhagen. We are here talking about the prelims right now, though, with a featured prelim between Daniel Pineda and Tucker Lutz. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a fight night prelim card. They don't really have, I'm not going to ask for any more quality than just to have guys on it. Mm-hmm. You know. This is fine. This is a fine yeah. fight. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not they're not light heavyweights. Yeah. They're not exactly. heavyweights. I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. Pineda has made it he, he has turned himself into a weirdly fun fighter in that he is entirely, utterly breakable and mm-hmm. really, really dangerous in all phases too. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of it's kind of the most fun kind of fighter to watch. The guy who, you know, it, it's what was like the most fun. It, it, it's what makes the best Anthony Smith fights the most fun. Yeah, like uh, he, basically the the proposition of fighting somebody like Daniel Pineda, or I think Smith is a great comparison, is you are going to have to fight him. Yeah. Right. Like he's not going to go away. He's not going to, like, you know, fight a beautiful strategy to just shut you out. But you're going to have to, like, take some serious shots. He is going to scrap with you. Mm -hmm. He Um, he will hurt you. If you let your foot off the gas, this person will hurt you in any area. If you put your foot on the gas, you can break them in any area, too. Yeah, but it's not that easy. You know, it's it's, going to be a struggle. Um yeah, I think that's that's basically been Pineda's run. Like he was crushing Cub Swanson mm-hmm. before getting caught. He was not crushing Andre Feely, but he was certainly making Feely work for it. Um, and you know was like also like testing every areas of Feely's game in ways that like nominally better fighters don't always. Mm-hmm. A couple points where he was getting close on takedowns with Feely and uh, was just being very difficult to put away. And um. I think that makes him an interesting test for Tucker Lutz, who 
is how young is Tucker Lutz? He's 28. Yeah. I, th- I think Tucker Lutz might have some potential. I don't think he's going to be a champion, but. Um, it's one of those things where he could very well become a top 15 fighter. Yeah. But it is worth noting that while that not only is he 28, but he's also been fighting for eight years. So like, you know, this is what we see now of Tucker Lutz might, it might never be better than it is right now. Yeah. Or, or you could argue this is him, you know, like right at the big early middle stage of his prime. Maybe he's just entering his prime. Yeah. Um, but the, the, I would say probably big leaps are probably already have the, the big jumps have probably already happened. Yeah. But I, but the reason I like Tucker Lutz is I, I don't think he needs massive jumps. Like, yeah, I, I think he does have a lot of the makings of a very solid fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, unless he's fighting Pat Sabatini, he's a strong wrestler. Yeah. And uh, really that was that fight more than anything was just a testament to the insane flexibility of Sabatini's takedown game that he was able because his first many attempts in fact uh on getting Lutz off of his feet were completely unsuccessful mm-hmm. it's just that Lutz could not prevent him from getting to the clinch common problem for MMA fighters who don't want to get out wrestled and every time they got there uh there would just be increasingly like deeper layers of takedown threats being created yeah something that Sabatini and really all the best wrestler grapplers today have to have is a deeply layered takedown game in the clinches. Mm-hmm. And so um, otherwise Lutz is a, a competent wrestler at the very least. Yeah. And a good athlete and a pretty good natural counterpuncher, actually. Mm-hmm. He, he, like, does, he, he does well to counter in combination. Exactly. Yeah. He, he puts his shots together nicely. He's got a nice left hook. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, basically the, the you know, if you're expecting something from the Sabatini fight to rear its head here, it's do you think Pineda is going to grind him out with a deep wrestling game or I'm, I'm not even sure that the reactive shots that Sabatini started to hit later in that fight would have materialized without the more grinding manner of takedown game that happened earlier. Yeah. So I, I would say Lutz is if, if Pineda is like an Anthony Smith type, Lutz reminds me of like a like a Cody Stamen type. I just think he's a yeah. solid fighter. Cody Stamen, kind of Ryan Bader, you know. Yeah. Ryan just, Bader, but it doesn't not it doesn't ex- explode when he starts yeah. to win. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't detonate. Yeah. Cody Stamen is probably a pretty good example of what I would expect as well, where it's right. just like, oh, yeah, this is a very solid, difficult fighter to beat. Uh, it's worth noting that as his level of competition has stepped up once he got off of the regional scene where he was largely can crushing, you know, even mm-hmm. fighting like two and two dudes in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um once he took a step up to like, oh, better selected contender series fights and now a couple of UFC fights, he's not finishing anybody. No, he's become a decision machine. Yeah. Yeah. He he doesn't really have the – I think countering in combination like that is a pretty surprising thing on the regional scene. So you're really going to catch a lot of people yeah. with shots. He's, he's a good enough athlete. Like, yeah. He's going to hit them quickly and hard and he's just going to break them. and uh, Yeah. And the further up you go, just the harder it is to finish people. The yeah. tougher the the 
architecture of every division just selects for guys with good chins. Yep. And the fundamental thing you need to be a high level fighter. The way that Lutz seems to have learned his boxing is very much a like be light on your feet, be quick. And it's funny because when you look at him and he, he, it's very much, you know, in that sense, it's a lot like Cody Stamen where you look at him and you're like, oh, this, this, this little ball of muscle is going to punch like a, you know, right. Right. And then you see him in in the cage and you're like, oh, that was a nice little like four punch. You know, he he kind of boxes like uh, Jennifer Maya did uh, against Casey mm-hmm. O'Neill. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, wow, that's just a nice little quick like four punch counter combo. And now you're like bouncing away and stuff like that. And you're just not that interested in, you know, sitting down and winging a big overhand like we think of most MMA fighters doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll I'll take that, you know. Yeah. That it's very functional. It has got Cody Stamen plenty of wins and made him a borderline top 15 fighter. It could do the same for Tucker Lutz. And I think the big thing here is that also over his career, outside of his debut, Lutz has been very difficult to finish himself. Yep. That that mentality of be quick and like counter in combination, get away, you know, hit a reactive double or take somebody down when you need to and control them. It's a pretty safe, you know, stay out of harm's way kind of style. And for a fighter like Daniel Pineda, who is very much living and dying by the sword every time out. Yeah. I think it will probably reap rewards as the fight goes on and Pineda starts to fade. God damn, dude. Can I just say, just a complete side note, anyone listening, go rewatch Feely Pineda. Yeah. Because there is a sequence near the end of the first round, like a minute and a half left, where Feely lands a four-punch combination that starts as a counter into a head kick, desperation clinch, and then just lat drops. Yeah. (laughs) Very cool. Pineda is a guy who is made for more promising fighters uh, to to be able to, like, do lots of really impressive things against. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas Lutz is, seems more destined to be the guy that no one looks particularly great against. Yeah. <laughs> Frustrating. Yeah, yeah I, I will take Lutz. I am curious. I know Pineda these days loves the calf kicks. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see how Lutz deals with that. I haven't really seen him face a lot of heavy low kick games yet. Um, that could be definitely uh, something that, that sort of puts a hitch in his ability to stay at the range he likes. Yeah, if he does counter a combination, though, Pineda is insanely counterable off of his yes. low kicks. That, that is exactly how his low cook domination ended against Cub Swanson. Yeah. He, he just kept getting countered. Um, oh. But yeah, Lutz isn't uh, as dangerous as somebody like a late career Cub Swanson. So um, yeah. I think it could still be a very interesting fight. I think Pineda is just a lot crazier than Lutz wants to be. Yeah. And he could... Pineda's just, he's much more likely to self-destruct along the way. So. That That is the reason, really, that I'm picking lots. I just, solid, reliable. Yeah. Uh, odds on the fight, Lutz is a pretty serious favorite here. Um, currently sitting in the, as high as, min- or as low as minus 300, I should say. Uh, can't tell where he opened, but uh, Pineda opened... Also can't tell. Currently sitting, oh, Pineda opened at minus, minus, what? That can't be right. Okay. Pineda opened at plus 190, is currently up at plus 216. 
and lots opened at minus 225, currently at minus 274. So, yeah, I don't really think the odds should be too, too wide for this, honestly. Yeah, I mean, Lutz they, isn't Cody Stamen yet. No, and it has to be noted that, like, despite getting drummed out of the UFC a while ago, Daniel Pineda, you know, he had a couple of overturned uh, results in PFL, but Pineda has not done a lot of losing in mm-hmm. the past uh, near decade. Mm-hmm. A split decision loss to Emmanuel Sanchez, a TKO doctor stoppage. I think it was a cut to Georgie Karakanyan. And then the Cubs Swanson KO and the Feely fight ended in an eye poke. They're basically all really good veterans. Yeah. He when he's fought young, promising prospects, yeah, he's actually just crushed them because he's so lived by the sword. Exactly. The sword that, I think like, that that is the real benchmark. It's like the opponents who beat him are ones who just do not get overawed by how yeah. violent he is. And uh, yeah, I don't think Lutz has really faced a lot of that before. He he has generally been the guy who can. Uh, dominate his opponents. And then in the UFC where he's been getting decisions, they've been very kind of, they're not like touch and go kind of fights. Wow. So yeah, I I think it's a, it's a a test for Tucker Lutz that I want to see. I wouldn't be super duper confident in him, in him passing it just yet. Uh, Yeah. And uh, that brings us to a featherweight bout, Steven Peterson, Lucas Alexander. And, um, this is this is a hard one to call just for. Let's see, am I actually in the right place? Because I, I just realized. Yeah, yeah, you are. Is yeah. it just me or is this a uh, who gets to stay in the UFC kind of matchup? Uh, at least it would have been in a prior era. Yeah, of I mean UFC booking. Well, Steven Peterson is unfortunately like he's a guy where every UFC success is is surprising, and yeah. every time he gets a win coming, or every time he loses and gets another fight is also surprising because he is absolutely a quadruple a talent. He is aggressive as hell. He loves an overhand to a double leg. He is not at all athletic enough to actually knock people out with that at a high level or take people down. Yeah. But he is nearly impossible to, to knock out himself. He is nearly impossible to knock out himself, and he is utterly impossible to dissuade. Yeah. He, if he is not knocked out, he will come after you no matter what. Yeah. Um, just exactly the kind of dude that is, you know, if you're if you're on the regionals and you're you've got like a young prospect that you're trying to push up the regionals, guys like Steven Peterson are a nightmare for a young prospect. Yeah. Um. And that actually makes this fight interesting because Lucas Alexander very much looks like a fighter that can absolutely still lose these kinds of fights. Mm-hmm. He strikes, he hits really hard. His strikes look pretty clean and he does zero fight management at all. No tempo management, no distance management, easy to back up, not really hard to take down. But if you are sitting out there in evil, even space with him, he can hurt you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's yeah. a. This is the kind of matchup that Steven Peterson is designed to just make harder than it should be. Yeah. Alexander looks like a far more talented fighter with promise. Steven Peterson has long ago <laughs> made the case that, like, yep, yeah, all he promises is a Steven Peterson fight. Yeah. It's just um, going to be really hard to beat. Yeah. And yeah, I wouldn't be at all shocked if uh, if Lucas Alexander just even starts super strong and is just shook when Steven Peterson just keeps coming at him. I mean, if Steven Peterson was even a little bit more technical, just a little bit, if he was like he, he's he's like more of a mess than guys like uh, who's the guy who uh, who um, robbed uh, Michelle Pereira. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what is his name? Um, right. <laughs> Tristan Connolly. Connolly, yeah. Yeah, Tristan Connolly. Yeah, if he was like that technical, I think he would be a markedly better fighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Connolly um, did not have the durability that Peterson had. Right. Has. Peterson is insanely durable. He has that necessary ingredient. Um, but he, he really is just like so wide open. Uh, the the punches he was throwing in that fight with uh, with um, it was Arosa, right? Yeah, yeah. Were like, I mean, they were landing because yeah. that's Julian Arosa. You throw a right hand at him, he is like, he is so ready to eat it. But oh my god, just falling over, nothing clean, nothing straight, nothing that isn't like his face comes into range well before the hand he's throwing does. Mm-hmm. But he'll do it a lot with intensity, with the knowledge that he basically can't be knocked out. I think it's only happened once in his career. Um, it seems very much like a fight that he could like be barely hanging on and still just gas the young Lucas Alexander by the end. And but <sighs> the thing is, Peterson himself doesn't like. He's got some finishes. Yeah, it happens occasionally just because he's so wild. If he can actually overwhelm you, yeah. then he can find his way onto your back and choke you out. Or he might land, you know, he landed a spinning back fist to knock out Martin Bravo. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, he's got a TKO via elbows. If he can absolutely overwhelm you or catch you by surprise, he can finish you. But mostly he, you know, he just doesn't have the power, the physicality the uh, takedown ability, the drive for his shots to to take people far enough out of their comfort zone that, you know, even not even at like a Billy Quarantillo or Quarantillo yeah. or uh, Bill Algio level. Yeah. You know? it, I don't know. I, I have a hard time calling a fight like this because, yeah, P- Peterson is such a mess. It's not even a very like directed. He's a pace fighter for whom like how he gets that pace is kind of up in the air all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of like building weapons. He doesn't have a reliable jab. He doesn't cut off the cage. Well, he doesn't have a super imposing wrestling game to force people to deal with all the time. Mm-hmm. It's, he is a brawler, like mm-hmm. pure and simple, a brawler. Um, I'm kind of inclined to pick him though. Yeah. Right. Just cause like, Granted, against a much more imposing athlete, but like Lucas Alexander just instantly got cornered by Joe Anderson Brito. Yeah. And was just like flailing around by the fence within seconds of the fight beginning and hanging out there and mm-hmm. then trying to kick off of his back foot and like 
this does not look like somebody who has yet figured out how to deal with somebody who is just relentlessly there. Yeah. Um, Peterson doesn't necessarily need to be a great pressure fighter to get Alexander in bad positions in the cage. And I, I just, I, again, he's, he's insanely tough. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of inclined to, to pick Peterson for like the, the veteran pace fighter pick. Well, that's too bad because I was hoping that I would be able to like oppose you by picking. Yeah, Peterson. just Lucas Alexander looks dangerous. He does. He just is not. He just doesn't look ready. Exactly. He he looks very raw. He looks undercooked. He looks like a fighter that is going to struggle at this level because, like I say, he doesn't he doesn't do anything to control the pace of the fight at all. Yeah. You know his fight. His win over Jacob Kilburn was not a fight that it was just like, oh yeah, he's really easily winning that. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, he was in it and Kilburn was pushing him back a lot and getting hit, but pushing him back a lot and then got his arm broken by like a kick. Yeah. And it is that lack of a strategic understanding that you. Yeah. You get out of uh, sort of like we were talking with Pineda, like the guys who beat Pineda are the guys who uh, don't just get caught up in the moment of what's happening. And Peterson's mm-hmm. a lot less potent than Pineda, but. It's the same kind of problem. Like if you're inexperienced, then like all of these criticisms you can lob at Peterson don't really mean anything. Like Mm -hmm. who gives a shit if his technique is suspect, if his chin is out there, if his combinations are hideous and he's off balance the whole time. Like he's there. He's trying to hit you. He's not stopping. Yeah. Uh, That can be very overwhelming for a young fighter. Yeah, I think I'm going to take Peterson, too. I mean, if Lucas Alexander goes out there and just, like, blasts him or just, you know, is a little bit elusive and Peterson can't ever touch him, I won't be shocked. But that would be a big notch in Alexander's belt, you know? Yeah, I think so. If Peterson goes out and wins this fight, I think the the big thing, the best way I can frame it is if Peterson goes out there and wins this fight, I'll be like, yeah, okay, well, you beat a young guy who wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. And if Alexander goes out there and wins his fight. Like, hey, you know what? You showed up and you proved something. And if that's my attitude, I kind of have to pick Peterson. Mm-hmm. I feel like beating out. I feel like for Alexander to win this would prove something I haven't seen from him yet. Odds on the bout. Steven Peterson is he's the favorite. Uh, opened at minus 170, currently minus 164, got my, as low as minus 180 at one point, but has shot back up. He cannot make T- Peterson a, a big favorite at all over anybody. Alexander opened at plus 145, currently down at plus 133. I think I think they got it right. Yeah, I think that's actually pretty good. That takes us to a welterweight bout. Trevin Giles, Preston Parsons, and uh, mm-hmm. Trevin Giles still doing this welterweight thing, huh? Yeah, I I have been saying, and we we just had this big. Thing, I don't know if you saw this thread that uh, I, I I I latched onto it and got a bunch of uh, oh the age the age ceiling thing. Uh huh. No, I was very interested in that. Yes. Yeah. Total was, listeners. So somebody put did a bunch of research. I barely just jumped onto it as a hanger on that showed that their and their data set that they used was for fighters 
35 and older in title fights at welterweight and down, those fighters are 2 and 28. Yeah. And so I was like, well, what are they for fighters 30? Well, I thought they, the person, the, the version of it I saw said over 35. So I did 36 and over. Because mm-hmm. you say over 35, I assume. Yeah, you mean. that's what that means. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I did 36 and over for middleweight. And I was like, well, what's the record there? And the record for 36 year olds and older in title fights, 185 pounds and over, is 28 and 31. It's basically 50 50. It's basically 50 50. And there are twice as many of them competing. Yes in those bouts that was another yeah side statistic and it, it, it turns out if you took only 36 and older for the lower half it's like one in eight there have been nine title fight there, there have been nine people in title fights older than or at age 36 and older in the history of the ufc mm-hmm. and they've lost almost all of them yeah so this is something that's true in boxing too. I mean, like being a lighter weight class, taking more punches, uh, placing more of a premium on like speed mm-hmm. and agility that the smaller, the weight class, the, the shorter, the earlier and shorter a fighter's prime is generally. Yeah. And it, it's to say too, that, uh, fighting is MMA is way different above uh, at 185 pounds and over Mm -hmm. than 170 pounds and below yeah it's worse it's worse (laughs) (laughs) but it's also just different like physically what is valued is different as well yeah and so somebody like trevin giles people who transition i I say this for the trevin giles fight because I am incredibly nervous about any fighter that trans- decides to jump between the welterweight and middleweight division in either direction. Mm-hmm. It's much better to go from welterweight to middleweight because technically it is just worse. And you, you know, like you yeah. can, for Darren Till, a move to middleweight seems like a great idea because it's just like, oh, you have a very shallow game and you're a pretty big dude. Middleweight's going to serve you, you know? Yeah, he wasn't any worse there than he really was at welterweight. No, but at the same time, it didn't do him any favors either. No. We can say now because middleweight really is. I I was also thinking about this. This came up. uh, Somebody else mentioned, I think uh, it was uh, Troy, longtime MMA guy, Mm -hmm. former industry rep. Piddle. Yep. Yeah. he he was saying, well, you know, my feeling has long been that they there should only be one division, 180 pounds and up. It should all just be one division. Yeah. And I was thinking about this, and I was like, well, really, logically, if Anthony Smith can go from middleweight journeyman to light heavyweight title contender, mm-hmm. and if Randy Couture can be a six-foot-one multiple-time heavyweight champion— then yeah that's probably true like yeah if you put alex Pereira in against cyril gone in two months how how big a disadvantage do you think alex Pereira would be at um none exactly. <laughs> i think i'd pick him to win 
right? Yeah, I like the way they do it in boxing. I mean, boxing, that's honestly how it was for a long time. A lot of the legendary heavyweight champions like Jack Dempsey and Joe Lewis, they were under 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't uh, institute cruiserweight. Uh, light heavyweight, and for those who don't know, light heavyweight in boxing is 175. And then cruiserweight is 175 to to 200, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and it used to, is, two, is like 200 and up. Basically. Yeah, the, cruiserweight is one of the new in-between divisions. It used to just be 175 and up. Yeah. That was heavyweight. And uh, a lot of the best boxing, uh, the heavyweight champions in boxing history were at the smaller end of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, there were giant ones too, but uh, even now, uh, cruiserweight's a good division because it's basically all the good heavyweights. Yeah. Uh, just look at Alexander Uzik doing a, you know, very John Jones type of thing, being like, wait a minute, these guys suck and moving up in weight, and now he's a heavyweight champion. Yeah, and how, look at how bad somebody like a, a giant like Tyson Fury doesn't want to fight him. Yeah, he's very, very clearly does not want to fight this little uh, Wolverine. But um, even even in this current uh, situation, 200 and up, and I don't think there's an upper weight limit. And I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Like, why even put a first of all, why put a size cap on it? There are yep. massively diminishing returns for professional fighters. The higher they go above like 250 anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're already limited by being big oafs. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with that. I, yeah. I, I would be, it would form together three cr- chronically weak and sloppy and stupid divisions into one large and quite competitive one with yeah. a lot of crazy, like pride era variants in the kinds of matchups you could get. Right. Imagine like Derek Brunson versus like, oh my God, imagine like Derek Brunson versus like, uh, uh, um, Alexander Volkov like yeah you don't want to see fights like that <laughs> that right. horrible and beautiful anyway uh, that. all of this is to say that Preston Parsons is going to walk on to a lot of shots yes uh from Trevin Giles and I gotta pick Preston Parsons to win that's right the reason we got onto that topic is that Trevin Giles is a middleweight moving down to welterweight, more to the point, a guy whose style places heavy emphasis on his athletic advantages. Yeah. And so as an aging fighter, how old is Trevin Giles? He's 30. I'm not saying, yeah, the the whole age thing was just to show how different MMA is. Yeah, like a real actual stat. It's like, there's actually a huge difference in fighting at 185 than there is to 170. Because you can get old at 185, you can't get yeah. old at 170. But the, yeah, exactly. But there are parallels. Like the yeah. um, age is less important in the bigger weight classes because, like, you just don't need to be as fast. You don't need to be as agile. Yeah. Your stamina doesn't need to be as good because everyone else sucks at these things anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, being a guy who, as a middleweight, was very athletic and little else, uh, is sort of like is sort of like. Um, yeah, trying to stack up what counts for youth at middleweight with youth at welterweight. Like your athletic, Trevor Giles' athleticism just isn't that impressive at welterweight. Mm-hmm. And his flaws are a lot more exploitable. 
Yeah, he's and always been a fighter who backs up with his defense entirely absent, assuming that he's out of range and can just get clocked. Yep. Uh, he has always been a very, fairly static top control wrestler who he can hit takedowns, but then he will just kind of hang out in positions on top and get swept. He's just, he's always been a fighter who kind of thinks that he's it safer than he ever is. Yeah. And wrong kind uh, of arrogance. Yeah. And at middleweight, it, it worked pretty well for him most of the time because uh, his opponents actually couldn't do that much to him. Right. He was way faster than them. And, yeah. you know, he actually has a jab. Yeah. It doesn't really connect to a deeper technical game, but he does know how to, like, use his speed to just, like, stab people from far away. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't really have a strong feeling on how the Trevin Giles game at welterweight stacks up against Preston Parsons. Parsons is a solid fighter. He's a pressuring bully who yeah. really needs to be able to control people and work in volume to, yeah, to win. He's, he's fairly well, well-rounded within that yeah. style. Like <laughs> he will, he will take whatever Avenue to bullying you is available. Yeah. Um, I, I do think he's going to look a lot slower than Trevin Giles. Probably. He's absolutely going to get, as you said, he's going to get popped in the nose a lot very early. He has no range game, so he is going yeah. to have to walk onto Giles. He just has to walk into people, and um, I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's enough of an overwhelming pressure game to keep Giles out of the fight. To keep him out of it, no, but I'm still going to pick Parsons to win. Um. Giles is he's just too hurtable. If you can get to him, you can hurt him. You know? Like I mean, the dudes who are hurting him are monsters though. Not that Preston Parsons can't hit, but like Drinkus Duplessis and Michael Morales. Morales is like one of the craziest athletes I've seen. Zach Cummings he's did too though. Very, very raw. Yeah, that's true. Zach, you know, Zach Cummings is a good fighter. though. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I guess I'll side with you. I, I'm you not that. Com- I'll side with you. You know, I saw, but but seeing like Preston Parsons just get like his face busted up with one straight punch from D Rod Rodriguez. Um, I don't know, man. He's very hittable, and Giles is. is fast and a straight puncher. Well, he sometimes, is. sometimes. I'm, I'm just not convinced like Giles we just saw a fight where his opponent basically did not have the confidence to move forward at all and it's all Preston Parsons knows how to do yeah and uh Giles looked okay in that fight but he didn't actually look great against Lewis Cosey no he's not gonna look great at welterweight I think that's pretty clear and so I'm just not gonna trust that like his tools, his tool set is is good enough to deal with even pretty like raw lower, t- especially somebody who's a who's a pretty physical force. Parsons seems like a pretty physically capable dude. Yeah, I'm if he's just going to be aggressive, I'm I'm not going to pick Giles. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's basically, uh, like if Giles. if Giles had stayed at welterweight and fought a slightly faster than usual version of like um. Uh, who's the French Canadian? 
um, Mark oh. Andre Barrio. Yeah, you mean stayed at middleweight. Yeah, stayed at middleweight rather. Yeah. Yeah, and fought a slightly faster version of Mark Andre Barrio. Yeah. Do do I think Mark Andre Barrio at middleweight might have beaten him? I kind of do. Yeah. So fair enough. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that makes it's sense a good. It's a fight where Giles could shine. I just don't trust his application of his tools and yeah. his defensive absence enough at welterweight to pick him against. Yeah, that's true. He just uh, cannot get away with all of the technical lapses in his game at welterweight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just know, I just know Preston Parsons is going to eat a ton of straight punches early, but yeah, I agree. Uh, Giles opened at minus minus one ten. is currently minus minus one eleven, and Parsons opened at minus minus one ten and is currently minus minus one eleven. So they are absolutely dead. Even uh, worth noting too, as well, that uh, other than Bevan Lewis, Giles has not knocked anyone out since 2017. So he did, his late... he did his damnest against James Krause, to be fair. But yeah, but you know that's also fighting a a a that was inflated a welterweight. <laughs> welterweight on short notice. James Krause like had his own moments in that fight too. He certainly did. And Giles is prone to gassing when he is having success. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. The more, the more I think about it, the more I think that your Parsons pick makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's just, I need to see Giles show real consistent success at welterweight before I just pick him against most mm-hmm. competition there. Yep. That adds up. That brings us to a flyweight bout. CJ Vergara, Daniel Da Silva, and um, I am a little sad that Daniel Da Silva could not get his shit together. Yeah, this feels like a I want flyweight fights, and Mom says we have flyweights at home kind of match. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are flyweights. I mean, like Vergara is the kind of fighter that I'm all we're always gonna root for because yeah. you know he's a low athlete. Uh, he is a slow flyweight who yes. is getting through it based on grit and aggression and, and relentlessness. And I'm always going to have a soft spot for those guys. Sure. He's making uh, it work when it shouldn't. Yeah. Daniel De Silva though, is your classic wheel. The parts are flying off of him every <laughs> second he's in the cage. Like, yes, he is flyweight Eric Silva. Yeah. That's you a very know, good comparison. Where you're like, man, this guy is dangerous. You see him in that first minute of a fight. <laughs> you're like, wow. Every every Daniel De Silva fight he's had, I've been like, man, I think this is the one. I think, you know, Victor Altamirano. Altamirano is not dangerous. Yeah. I see how dangerous Daniel De Silva is. Francisco Figueredo, he fades in a hurry. I've seen how dangerous Daniel De Silva is. Jeff Molina, he's not that athletic. I've seen how dangerous Daniel De Silva is. Yeah. I'm picking him. And every single time, he just explodes into a massive, fiery ball <laughs> and is just snuffed within minutes. And I got to stop, especially against Vergara, who has just proven that he is going to be a tough guy who hangs around. Like, yeah, I can't I can't pick the dude who just got abs his shit wrecked by Victor Altamirano. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you all the way on this one. 
Yeah, Vergara is like a, a flyweight Preston Parsons. <laughs> You're not supposed to get Preston Parsons yeah. at, uh, at flyweight. But uh, Daniel Da Silva is a type of fighter that we that exists in every division. Yeah. Like, he, yeah. Eddie, he yeah. is Eric, Eric Silva. He is, uh, oh, what's his name back in the day? The Max Murderer. The Max Murderer? Yeah. Um, damn it. Was that his nickname? Yeah. Instead of the Axe Murderer? Yeah. Maximo Blanco? Ma- Maximo Blanco. Yeah. Yeah, he's Blanco. He's Jordan Wright. He's yeah. uh, Charlie, whatever. The other, like, light no, heavyweight Charlie guy. Charlie Ontiveros. Yeah. Charlie Ontiveros. Like, these guys all have varying degrees of success. They exist yep. at varying levels of, like, athleticism that allows them to be more or less potent. But potency is what they depend on. Yeah. And there is no regulation <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> to the game it is in fact self-destructive because it is <laughs> so desperately trying to just finish the fight as quickly as possible and uh and yeah da silva combines that uh, unlike some of these guys with a particularly like uh alex perez style of actually just imploding when it doesn't work yeah like a really really quick turnaround mm-hmm. and yeah vergara is super reliable Yep. You know, he's 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 going to reliably lose to most of the best flyweights, but he he's going to like lose the same kind of fight to all of them where he's just there the whole time. He's plodding forward. He's throwing slow punches, but he's putting them together reasonably well and he's not getting blown out. Yep. He's he's not getting hurt bad. Yep. He's not getting uh you know like well, I mean, Tyra, Tyra, Tyra really showed off in that fight, which was great to see from Tyra. Yeah, and that's but Tyra's yeah. secret A game is his grappling anyway. But. Yeah. But yeah, he's not going to – most guys are just not going to like throw him around. They're not going to yep. hurt him too much. He's just going to be in their face, and they're going to be faster than he is, so they're going to beat him up. But Yep, but he is solid enough to hang with much, much better and more consistent fighters than Daniel Da Silva. Yep. Odds on the bout, De Silva opened at plus 220, is currently down at plus 203, and Vergara opened at minus 216, is currently minus 256. I, I like that. Um, it's pretty mm-hmm. consistent. There's been some movement up and down on that, but g- giving Vergara props is like being a reasonable favorite here actually feels good to me. He's very he, tough. Yep. And De Silva just self-destructs so fast. Yep. I, I think that's – I don't know how they could – if they had given De Silva favorite odds or well, even no, close yeah. odds. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like how would you even give him close odds? Right. Yeah. He has just been exploding within minutes of every single fight he's had in the UFC so far. Right, that brings us to a lightweight bout, Manuel Torres, Trey Ogden. And – um. This, uh, I think this should be reasonably fun. Yeah. I like Manuel I mean, Torres' style. Yeah, he's he's definitely stepping in looking to be an aggressive finisher all the time. Mm-hmm. And that should be fun against Ogden, who is very much trying to be a guy that does not get finished. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, Ogden had his last fight against Daniel Zellhuber. Uh-huh. And this is a guy who sort of has Torres' frame. Yeah. But is uh, scared. You know, like <laughs> he sees Ogden's jab, 
sort of flicking out. He sees Ogden using evasive footwork, and it take, took him a long while to kind of work up the nerve to, like, run in and try something. Yeah. Um, it was, was just way too easily backed off. And um, I don't think that is Manuel Torres' style at all. No, it shouldn't have been Zell Huber's either, but it was for that fight. And yeah. It was a big mistake. Yeah, but, uh, you know, maybe that happens. I don't know. Zell Huber had never faced somebody who was like that sort of anti-fight. Yeah. Um, but Ogden just, uh, yeah, was was able to do just enough and, and give him just just enough threats that he he wasn't he didn't feel I don't know he like it's like he didn't even give him enough feedback for him to just sort of instinctively fire on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it still wasn't a fight where Ogden looked particularly good either. Uh, you know, very 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 too measured of a pace, and I think Torres, as far as like long tall guys go, is a lot closer to the Shavkat Rachmanov school. Yeah. Um, he will very happily get into the pocket and put punches together. Um, he frankly likes his left hook a little too much for, for my liking. Mm-hmm. Like he really could fire his jab in there and it would probably be super effective, but he wants to get in and throw short and mid range combinations. And I think that's probably enough for me to, to think that he will overwhelm uh, the kind of measured fight that Ogden wants to have with everybody. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, Ogden, you know, it really kind of gave the game away for Ogden, that fight he had with uh, Leave It. Leave It, where leave leave it, it, all, it. Or leave it, all of it had to do was just kick him every time he stepped in, and Ogden could never really get up the gusto to actually yeah. press a more aggressive fight. Yeah. And just lost by slapping low kicks. And. Yeah, so I think I I gotta feel like, you know, maybe he'll walk on to some big shots, but as long as Manuel Torres is willing to just go after Ogden, he's not gonna find somebody really w- willing to meet him with consistent physicality and aggression. Mm-hmm. It's it's just not entirely clear what Ogden is really good at. Yeah, he's he's just a very negative fighter. Mm-hmm. So, like, you might be worried about Torres's aggression, like running him onto a shot takedown or something. But a, I don't think Ogden's a great shot wrestler. Mm-hmm. And b, Torres, like all the best uh, mid-range tall guy uh, action fighters, he loves to like grab guillotines and hit quick back takes uh, yeah. when people desperately shoot on him. I think he's what I like about him is that he's he's super aggressive, but he seems fully aware that like he's he's creating trapped animals. Mm-hmm. who are going to have to respond, and he seems to want them to. Yeah, he seems he's, like a, he, he's got a good finishing instinct and a good way yes. of, a good idea of how to create finishing exchanges. So Yes. Uh, yeah, I like that more than what I've seen out of Ogden so far, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll side with it as well. Uh, Manuel Torres is the favorite here. Currently sitting at about minus 150 to minus 170. Ogden sitting between uh, plus 115 and plus 135 or so. And uh, yeah, that feels about right. I wouldn't mm-hmm. see. Ogden opened at plus 210. He's at currently plus 129. Torres opened at minus 250 and is currently minus 157. Those odds 
were definitely way too wide. Uh, I, I think that for Torres, you know, I like the aggressive finishing pressure style I've seen from him, but I don't necessarily think it's so clean that he's not, you know, going to walk himself into a few rude awakenings at some point. Sure, sure. And Ogden is also, you know, he seems like, as we said, a pretty negative fighter, a guy who makes it hard to beat him. So not the kind of fighter where I would just automatically be like, oh, yeah, no. He's like um, um, Zach Otto. Do you remember Zach Otto? Yeah, Zach Otto. And Otto was a tough fighter to beat. Sure. You he know? was also a middleweight, right? No, welterweight. A welterweight, okay. Yeah. I still that think the, the lower tier of uh, divisions where you can reliably get away with being this negative. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also, uh, oh, God, what was that guy who fought uh, Josh Emmett early in Emmett's UFC career? Oh, um, Green? Desmond yeah. Green? Desmond Green. Des Green was like a profoundly negative fighter, especially at lightweight. Yeah. He was actually fairly active in that Josh Emmett fight for him. Yeah. He actually used a lot of his range. Um, but yeah, th- yeah, th- there are a few of them sprinkled here and there, but, um, you know, and Will Brooks was a bit like this at times too. Like sometimes they achieve high success, but it's just like, it, it just doesn't seem like the UFC is like all like bloodthirsty, aggressive people. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just can't get away with it that long. No, uh, it's, it's, it's like, especially over three rounds. It's a style where like, yeah, maybe you could actually beat a, ch- a near championship level fighter mm-hmm. fighting that way over five rounds. But in three rounds, almost anybody in the division could also potentially beat you because you're just going to give away at least one by not doing anything. Yeah. And that is particularly for the likes of like Des Green and Will Brooks and yeah, not uh Trey Ogden. I don't think he's no. that good of a negative fighter that and he's not that level of athlete that they were to, to back up the negative exactly. aspects of their game. Exactly. Uh, all right. That brings us to another flyweight bout. Venetia Salvador, Victor Altamirano. And um, the aforementioned. Yeah, the aforementioned. And man, if I was fading Altamirano against Daniel Da Silva, <laughs> I really have to fade him against Venetia Salvador. Um, Salvador will walk on to everything. He is not at all shy about holding his head high and just eating shots. But he also couples that with being reasonably good at maintaining the pocket. Like he will stay at the distance where you can hit him, but he doesn't seem to walk himself into the clinch a lot. You know, he wants to be at the, he wants to be in like Diaz slap boxing range mm-hmm. where he's still in a punchable position, but he's also in a punt place where his wide armed hooks will always find their mark. And the problem for Altamirano here is really that somebody shrunk um, <laughs> Keith Jardine <laughs> and made him a flyweight and Altamirano doesn't have any punching power. Mm -hmm. Like his style is so awkward 
and he gets off balanced and he gets into this like little awkward sort of hunch step so easily that he cannot deliver hard strikes from his stance. And like what he ended up with, like with Silva, he was De Silva. He was just, he would just lean into De Silva and De Silva would clinch up with him. And then, you know, he's, he's like, like Keith Jardine, he's rugged and he will scrap through any kind of situation. But, uh, I think when I first saw him, I described him as like, a, he looks like a puppet with a string cut. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. part of the body just doesn't seem to move the way the rest of it should. <laughs> like, it's such a weird, awkward style standing up. Mm-hmm. And I think if Vinicius just maintains the pocket, he's just going to find... Altamirano right there in front of him, not really in position to throw anything with power back at him. So I got to pick Altamirano. Yeah, I got to pick I, uh, Salvador, rather. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't really have a whole lot to add. Uh, Altamirano is just... Uh, his, his, his Winning over De Silva is just, a, I think, a massive indictment of De Silva's yeah. complete... Not just lack of, but like refusal to have a style with any longevity to it at all. Yeah. Um, and he's otherwise just a very awkward, very hittable fighter. Yeah, they actually tried to book this for his. Um, man, they tried to book this for uh, Altamirano's debut. Mm-hmm. So they're they're getting back around actually, to it. They, they actually tried to book it on the Contender Series. It wasn't even his debut. It was. A oh, I see. The fight he was supposed to have on the Contender Series. I see. So. Yeah, I just think he's too potent. He looks too much like a real flyweight. Yeah. Altamirano is very much a not very athletic guy who has put a lot of very weird, very hard work in the gym where you kind of want to pull somebody aside and be like, what are you? What are you doing with this kid? Mm -hmm. Most fly like this is not going to survive with most flyweights. Yeah. He's the MMA equivalent of the guy who's like doing like pull-ups in the squat rack or something. Yeah. uh, (laughs) Who wants to tell him? Yeah. Yeah. It it is an awkward, awkward style in a division where most guys are have good, have like reasonable footwork and are fast and can just, you know, pot shot and get away, like dip in and dip back out to range in a way that like, I don't know how Altamirano is going to deal with that. For most mm-hmm. fighters. Mm-hmm. Odds on the bout. Altamirano is actually at dead even odds here. Um, open at minus 115. is currently at minus 107. Salvador opened at minus 105. Dropped to minus 117. is currently at minus 116. Altamirano is tough. So sure. this will be, you know, a, a scrappy fight for three rounds, probably. I just don't think he'll ever be the one landing the better shots. Yep, I agree. That brings us to a woman's bantamweight bout. Tamirez Vidal against Haley Cowan. And um, wasn't Cowan just booked like a few weeks ago? She was supposed to fight Eileen Perez and got sick and had to pull out of that fight and has been rebooked now against Vidal. 
Yeah, this is uh, pretty bottom of the barrel um, UFC matchmaking, I got to be honest. Yeah. Um, Tamiras Vidal, like, didn't even look particularly impressive beating Ramona Pasquale. Yeah, she we, we have mentioned in the past is like truly the bottom of the barrel for like athletic requirements. Like she is below the benchmark mm-hmm. of how physically potent you need to be to be in the UFC. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, she finished her with like a cool sequence, but like what led up to that was like a ton of inactive clinching. But all is uh, a blank slate with athletic gifts. Yeah. And even though it's kind of it's like awkward athleticism like yeah well she just she doesn't she can, have any like consistent martial like, arts training that's you know? it she's like Derek brunson like mm-hmm. she's 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 clearly got some power but like the the footwork that gets her into positions the, the her like the usual like shuffle steps to load up on something are like they look like somebody who's never done a sport yeah um and then she'll like there was a point in that Pasquale fight where she like fired a low kick and then she just got jabbed while she was throwing it and her feet just like came together completely and she just sort of like stumbled backwards. Like I, she's very awkward for somebody who's uh, clearly more athletic than the likes of Pasquale. Mm-hmm. Cowan looks more naturally athletic. Yeah, Cow- Cowan is thinks she's like a lifelong gymnast. Yeah. She she looks like somebody with a lot more natural coordination mm-hmm. to her athleticism. Um, it's not super clear what she's good at, despite that. But also somebody who has never done like any kind of combat sport before becoming an MMA fighter. Yeah, like it really looks like. I'm sure. Let me see. I'm sure she had amateur bouts uh, these days. Yeah, she had a few amateur bouts. It really looks like somebody who literally took their first MMA class when they took their first pro fight. Yeah. And is is just learning everything on the job. In fact, they both look like that. Yeah, but she, again, she looks like a significantly more natural athlete. Like, at least she's out there, like, bouncing around. She's keeping her stance even as she changes position in the cage. Yeah. You know, there's like she kind of seems to get how like rhythm works in a fight. Uh-huh. Um, she can still get like caught off guard because she just doesn't have the experience. But um, she's at least fluid, I guess, is yeah. the word I'm looking for. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know if that's like a very good reason to pick somebody, but it's why I'm going to pick her. She's big. She looks strong and she looks like a somewhat natural fighter, not just like somebody who like crushes soccer moms every other weekend. Yeah, my problem with Cowan is the, that um, pretty much the only thing that her game has to it is applied physicality. Yeah. Like, she throws strikes and stuff standing, but it's pure leaf blower action. Yes. Like, she is just – she has learned, okay, I need to throw strikes, and so she's just walking forward toward people – throwing strikes for somebody as big and physical as she is. There's no power behind it. There's a significant chance she was inspired to get an MMA by Holly Holm. Oh yeah. It looks like somebody who has modeled themselves on Holly Holm. Mm-hmm. There's no power behind it. It's just kind of throwing stuff out there. 
and then she ties up with somebody and she pushes him to the cage and then there's just kind of nothing. Yeah, that is at least where she will smash somebody with powerful strikes. And we are definitely going to get some clinches. Like for all that Vidal could have probably just been out there smacking Ramona Pascual around with just ugly meat hooks. She just instantly ran out and pushed her into the fence. Oh, yeah. No, they, we're, these two we're getting clinches. Um, and then when she gets the fight on the ground, too, she's just a blanket. Like there's there is just no functional application of like, oh, yeah, no, I've got an idea of how to hurt somebody. Yeah. One time in X position. Yeah, it's. It's all just. I know I know that when I've connected with somebody that I am strong and thus secure. Yeah, she she looks more natural, but every bit is raw. Yeah. And I'm going to pick Tamara's Vidal here just for that, just because Vidal looks like she's just out there. You know, she doesn't really know what she's doing, but she's out there trying to brawl. Yeah. And that means at any one moment she could land something big enough to end the fight. Whereas like. Haley Cowan, you know, was twice the athlete of the woman she fought in the contender series, controlling her all the time and still ends up with a split decision because she just gets so little done, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Bottom of the barrel action here. Yeah. I'll take... I will take Vidal just because I have more 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 reason to think that she if if somebody's getting knocked out in this fight, it's probably going to be Cowan, you know. For sure, yeah, for sure. All right, uh, odds on the bout. Cowan is a very slight favorite, currently sitting at about minus one twenty five. Open at plus one thirty five, currently minus one twenty four. Vidal opened at minus 155, currently plus 101. This fight should just be dead even. There's no yeah. reason to have a favorite here. No, um, one's, good. no one's good here. <laughs> yeah. All right. On that note, that wraps up our prelims, Vivi. Uh, for those of you, though, subscribing to our Substack, we will have just we'll touch on just a couple fights from the prelims of UFC 286. One or two, nothing too much. So stick around for that, and we'll be right back. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. The Bloody Elbow Podcast Network is moving. That's right, we're moving from SoundCloud and YouTube to Substack. It will still be available through your current iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher subscriptions, but the main home of the Bloody Elbow Podcast Network will now be on Substack. While most of our audio content will remain free, we'll be asking listeners to please get a paid subscription to support the shows which are now ad-free. Please give us your email and we'll send you notices and summaries of every new episode. Become a paid subscriber and get bonus segments only available to those who've pledged their support. Sign up at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com today.